Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Back with you now for a UBS on air exclusive thoughts on the market and macro environment with Jeffrey Gunlock, the chief executive officer, chief investment officer, and founder of Double Line Capital. Today's special conversation will cover a lot of ground, wide range of timely macro topics that have been moving markets as well as perspective around monetary policy, positioning guidance across multiple asset classes. Some quick background on Jeffrey before we get into our conversation. Jeffrey is recognized as an expert in bonds and other debt-related investments. In 2011, Jeffrey appeared on the cover of Barron's as the new bond king. In 2012, Bloomberg Markets magazine named Jeffrey one of the 50 most influential. In 2013, Jeffrey was named Money Manager of the Year by Institutional Investor. In 2015, Bloomberg Markets magazine again named Jeffrey as one of the 50 most influential. A Jeffrey is a graduate of Dartmouth College, summa cum laude, with degrees in both mathematics and philosophy. And Jeffrey is also an avid fan of the Buffalo Bills, currently 2-1 and one on the season, so on the lighter side, we will talk a little football towards the end of our conversation today. Though, Jeffrey, thank you very much, as always, for making the time. Looking forward to hearing your current thinking. Welcome back to UBS, Jeffrey. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for inviting me back again. Absolutely. So, uh, Jeffrey, as you know, 2022 has delivered a challenging environment for investors to navigate through. Jeffrey, how do you see the market landscape evolving through the balance of 2022, and what might trigger volatility in the markets? I think uh, one of the things we got to be looking out for, and it's getting timely now that we're rolling into uh, towards October, is obviously a lot of investors have losses, and a lot of investors are... Uh, wondering what to do, and losses are pretty big. Uh, bonds are down. The investment-grade bond index, the Bloomberg aggregate, was down over 15% a couple of days ago. Had a nice rally in everything yesterday, and I, I always like to say bear market rallies look better than the real thing, and that's what I think we had yesterday. Commodities up, stocks up, bonds up, emerging markets up, you name it, but it didn't last very long. Um, the, obviously, the market's worried about the Fed, Obviously, the Fed is worried about inflation and seems extremely committed at this point, more than I can remember uh, since Volcker uh, committed to getting the rates up. And uh, I think the most important statement that was made at the Fed press conference last week, just a week ago yesterday, was that they have every intention of of hiking rates until uh, interest rates are positive at every point of the yield curve. There's two ways of thinking about that. One is you can use the implied inflation going forward, comparing nominal bonds to tips. And Jeremy Siegel gave rather uh, passionate uh, criticism of the Fed on Friday, and he said that real rates are already positive. The only way he can make that statement is to use the uh, implied inflation from tips, which is really surprisingly anchored. Uh, it's really a, in, in the mid-twos again, back to where it was a few years ago. And so rates at, at 3.75 to four and a quarter or so, the uh, long end is inverted, of course. The long rates are, are lower than, than short rates. Uh, I mean, that is higher than two and a half. But I think Jay Powell, I think Jay Powell meant the CPI or at least the, at least the core PCE. So the core PCE is at four and a half, uh, core CPI is at six and a half, and of course headline CPI is at 8.1, 8.3 rather right now. And so I think that Jay Powell is, is suggesting very uh, strongly that the Fed funds rate is going to go into the fours. And of course, the real rate going positive 
objective, which is stated goal, is a real negative for risk assets. It's well known and uh, well documented that the uh, stock market PE goes down when real interest rates go up. And that's certainly been the story of, of 2022 here. And so I think we have to worry about inflation uh, coming out perhaps uh, stickier. Uh, our model at Double Line, which has been pretty accurate, uh, it's, it's, it's quite good at short-term inflation forecasting. Our model suggests that the, the core CPI, which is at uh, 6.5 or so, is going to go higher in the next month. So that's not going to help. But also, with all these losses in the market, I'm uh, quite uh, I'm quite confident that there will be tax loss selling that starts uh, maybe even in October, but certainly gets strong in November. And that could really weigh on, on, on prices as well. So uh, my, our base case has been we've been very defensive on bonds uh, for a year now, although we're less defensive now than we've been at any time in the past year. In other words, we actually, this week, it turned out it was lucky, we did it on Tuesday, bought a bunch of 10- and 30-year treasuries. And I don't really love those as assets, but I like them as a part of a portfolio because the risk assets now, stocks are obviously nowhere near as overvalued as they were at the beginning of the year, but bond risk assets really are, are shining right now in terms of their valuation. It's been a really weird year. I, I do a, just mar- a webcast called Just Markets uh, the first week of January, and I talked about how overvalued the stock market was in early January of this year compared to its own historical comparison. So you use things like PE, uh, Schiller Cape Ratio, price to book, and stuff like that. And going back for decades, the stock market was in the top couple percentiles of the most overvalued ever. On some of those metrics, it was the top percentile. But what I said in that in that webcast, interestingly, as overvalued as stocks looked versus historical comparisons uh, to stock markets of the past, they were actually cheap to bonds, to treasury bonds. And of course, spreads on risk assets in the bond market were very tight entering this year. So if you compare the yield on the 10-year to the yield on the S&P 500 as a proxy for the whole stock market, you use the, kind of the inverted PE if you had a yield, uh, bonds were actually uh, overvalued. Uh, versus stocks. Stocks were historically below average valuation versus bonds. And so it was really easy to not like the bond market entering this year. But thanks to the sell-off in stocks and all risk assets, we now have bonds greatly uh, undervalued versus stocks at this point because the yields on bonds have gone up so much. It's hard to believe that a year and a month ago, the two-year treasury yielded 15 basis points, and it got up to about 435 this week. So almost a 420 basis point type of rate increase. So I think this path of least resistance is still lower for risk assets. And in the bond market, I'd like to make a point fairly uh, loudly. Liquidity in the bond market is terrible. It's the worst it's ever been uh, for on a sustained basis. I've seen days like in 2008, 2009, where liquidity was non-existent. But right now, there's a the liquidity in even the treasury market. We had an investment meeting this morning, and my treasury head person said it's just so ugly out there. And when, when people say it's ugly out there in, in treasuries for liquidity, it just gets compounded uh, multiple times when you move down the credit spectrum. But one year ago, one year and one month ago, to, to get 5% from a bond portfolio, you had to leverage junk bonds. 
about 50% because they were yielding in the threes. It's really unbelievable. But now junk bonds yield almost 10% as a category to no defaults, of course. But then there's, there's many parts of the bond market that yield even 12 to 15%. They will probably have some defaults, but it is quite easy to put together a 10% yielding and maybe 15% total returning bond portfolio right now. And I think that's, that continues to be a challenge for stocks. Because bonds are cheap to stocks to begin with, and bonds, particularly risk, risky bonds, seem to be under renewed pressure uh, here in the month of September, and I don't think that's going to stop. So it's one of these things where the, the valuation comparisons were so favorable for stocks at the beginning of the year, and they're very unfavorable at this point. And so with the economy very likely to enter a recession sometime, I don't, I don't know if we're in a recession or not. I don't think it matters. We clearly have been experiencing stagflation this year. But the leading economic indicators are negative year over year now. That's a very strong recessionary signal. The unemployment rate, uh, the monthly unemployment rate is getting quite close to its 12-month moving average. The unemployment rate's at 3.7. The moving average is at 4.1. When that crosses over, it's a very strong sign of recession. And of course, we also have uh, consumer confidence and stuff like that is very, very weak. And the housing market, of course, is absolutely doomed from a price perspective because, you know, prices are up 40% on the median house over the past two years, and mortgage rates have gone from two and three quarters to almost seven. That means that the price, the, the monthly payment on the median priced home in America has gone up 100% in the past two years. So affordability is, is completely cratered. So anyway, I'll stop there, and uh, hopefully, hopefully that was uh, a, a good place to start. Maybe you can probe into some of these issues. Yeah, Jeffrey, thank you very much for that overview. Certainly a lot there to keep one up at night. It is amazing how you mentioned a few moments ago how quickly yields have come in a relatively short period of time. Overnight, Tuesday into Wednesday, we saw the 10-year breach 4%. Uh, just getting back to the Fed for a few moments, we heard today from Loretta Mester indicating that the Fed will need to continue hikes in order to combat inflation. How effective do you feel the Fed will be, Jeffrey, in doing so? And when might we see some evidence of this strategy indeed working? Well, I, I'll, let me start with what the Fed, what, what's happened this year with the Fed. And that is that the Fed thought entering this year that they might raise rates 25 or 50 basis points. They were just so far off. And where I really criticize them is they failed to follow the two-year the way that they always do. They, they delayed this year. If you look at my, my favorite chart in the, all the financial markets is the comparison of the two-year Treasury yield to the Fed funds rate. And they're almost always exactly the same, except the two-year leads by a little bit. So once the two-year starts to levitate higher, the Fed starts raising rates usually fairly quickly. But this time... The two-year Treasury went from 15 basis points to a percent and a half uh, from basically September of last year into about March of this year, and the Fed did nothing. They just started to maybe do a token 25 basis point. The two-year Treasury was up at around 2%. Well, I thought that the next, and I actually said this publicly, I knew it would never, this advice was never going to be listened to by the Fed. I said they should raise rates 200 basis points uh, immediately in the, like the April meeting and just stop and see what happens. But instead, you know, they, they, they kind of feel their way around 
you know, like Mr. Magoo driving the jalopy, and they end up bumping into a dumpster eventually. But they've gotten very, very aggressive. So they've already raised rates, you know, first 25, then 50, then 75, then 75. There's more 75s coming. And the Fed predicts, and the market believes them. If you look at the pricing of the bond market, the market believes that the Fed is going to get inflation down by maybe June of next year, uh, down to maybe 2.6 is what the market pricing is. Our model does not corroborate that. We think inflation is absolutely going to come down, but maybe only to about 4.6 by by June of next year. So it, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how the path of inflation actually plays out, because the Fed wanted to get inflation up. Remember, they, they were worried that inflation wasn't wasn't high enough, which is a concept that's very foreign to me. I don't I don't agree with it, but I think they wanted they intended to get the the CPI from. 2% or sub 2%. My suspicion is, and I don't have hard data for this, but my hunch is they were trying to get it up to four. And once it got to four, you started to hear talk about, well, it's, it's transitory. That's a word that was very popular last year. And instead, it went to 9.1 at, at the peak. I'm pretty sure 9.1 is going to be the peak, uh, at least uh, for, the year, for the year ahead. But, you know, they tried to get it from around one and a half to maybe four and ended up going to 9.1. So it overshot by about, you know, 500 basis points. And now they predict that it's going to go down from 9.1 peak a couple months ago down to 2.6. Then eventually, by the end of next year, they're predicting 2.1. My uh, problem with that is I don't really have a forecast where inflation is going to be at the end of 2023. But my problem with these statements is I don't understand why they think it's going to go so fast from 9.1 down to 2 and then just stop there and just be flatlining. And that's what's forecasted by most economists and also somewhat priced into the bond market. My fear is if they actually succeed at this mission, and clearly inflation is going to come down, so there'll be some success, but if they succeed at getting to 2%, I strongly believe it will undershoot and go negative and actually go into a neg- some negative monthly and even year-over-year prints. And I'm not predicting that's going to happen. I'm saying if they get it from 9 to 2, I, I see absolutely no logic for why it would just suddenly stop with all that kind of momentum going. So this is one of the reasons I like long-term treasuries, because I, I think that if the Fed actually succeeds – in getting to two, you might actually have a zero or negative inflation rates, and you could see a huge rally in bonds at the long end, as, as strange as that sounds. But rates have gone up a lot. I mean, as you said, uh, Dan, you had the 10-year Treasury for, for, for a brief moment go above 4%. Well, we've seen the 10-year Treasury at 50 basis points. It was a crisis kind of a condition. But who's to say the 10-year Treasury can't drop by 200 basis points? And, of course, if the long bond follows suit with that, you'd be looking at about a 40% gain in price. And that allows you to own this risky credit that will suffer and probably go down in price if the economy weakens significantly. But you have kind of an offset that way. And the yields are high enough on, on the treasuries, really across the curve. Let's just say it's around 4%. You can buy uh, – junk bonds, you can buy bank loans, you can, I'm, I'm not buying emerging market debt yet because I need the dollar to weaken, but you can buy things that yield around 12%, and you average that in with these treasuries, and you have sort of an 8% portfolio that has far less risk 
than, say, the S&P 500. Uh, the, the risky bonds might have the volatility of stocks. I would argue it's probably somewhat less, but you can think about it being in the neighborhood. But uh, they also have tremendous cash flow that's being generated because the prices are down so much. The bond market, I, I've been at this for 40 years, and one thing I try to uh, tell people to really understand is there's a huge difference between buying bonds that are new issue, corporate bonds or non-guaranteed mortgages or whatever it is, at a price of 100 or, and buying them at a price of 60 or 70. Because when you buy the, the securities at 100, you've got downside, you have no upside because they're callable uh, and and uh, the prices tend to get capped maybe at 105, 106 at the absolute highest. But when you're down at 60, 70 types of dollar prices, you've got tremendous upside. So I believe that the bond portfolio concept has less risk than stocks, probably four times the payout in current income, and probably the same or even greater upside. So very, very substantial turn uh, from January, first week of January this year, in terms of in terms of relative value. So the Fed is going to be tough. It's so clear. They're all singing from the same hymn book, same talking points. They're all united. They're going to raise rates. I think they're. I think they. I'm not sure they're making. I'm not even sure I would say they're making a mistake. I think they are intentionally over tightening. They're intentionally looking for the unemployment rate to go up, and they're forecasting that unemployment rate goes up by 1%. My fear is similar to the overshoot in the falling inflation turning into potential deflation. My fear is that if the unemployment rate goes up by 1%, I think it goes up by a lot more than that, because I think you'd be in a cycle of, of layoffs to get to get uh, just up one, so it's not, it wouldn't it wouldn't go up from three point seven to four point seven and stay there. I, I think it would go up to like I don't know six percent or something. So that's that's the kind of the, the basket of risks that the Fed is not making a mistake. They're intentionally doing this. You heard Jay Powell at Jackson Hole talk about inflicting pain. So he's getting getting people prepared, and they feel it's their duty to do this. And uh, we're, we have to we have to experience it, and it's going to put risk assets under further pressure. Jeffrey, in terms of how this all impacts the economy here in the U.S., the Fed's monetary policy, the recession risk in the U.S. is that a product of what the Fed is doing today? Do you believe? Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think the Fed should actually stop raising rates for a, a meeting, maybe even two, or maybe raise twenty-five at this upcoming meeting and the next meeting. I, I've, I've created an analogy. I'm kind of proud of it because it popped in my head when I was giving a speech a few weeks ago. That I remember the old Crown Royal ad. I think they still run it, but they were, I saw it a lot more frequently in past NFL seasons, NFL games, and they have a bar full of people, and this guy comes in full, in full referee you know, attire, and he blows a whistle, and he says, you know, everybody, your next drink is a water. And that's Crown Royal Company, of course, trying to act like a responsible, you know, alcohol uh, producer. But, you know, that's why I feel like with the Fed, I have this analogy that every time they raise rates 25, it's like doing a shot of Crown Royal. So they did one shot, then they did two shots, then they did three shots, they did three shots again. I feel like saying, man, slow down. Like, let's have a water here. Because everyone knows that the lags of, you know, monetary policy are variable but long. And we've already got a lot of rate increases pumped through the system in a short period of time, and they're hell-bent on doing at least another 125, I think, by year-end. 
I think it's a mistake. Um, I, I think it'll cause a steeper recession than they want, but they they really are committed to this. And so I don't think you want to fade uh, this rhetoric by the Fed. And the people that are looking for some sort of a pivot, uh, they might have a little bit of hope based upon the huge pivot by the Bank of England uh, the other night, where they suddenly went to uh, potentially unlimited buying of bonds because their rates were rising too much. I think, you know, we're going to see a Fed pivot, but it's not going to happen with the Fed funds rate, I don't believe, uh, below below 4%, and we're around 3 and 3 eighths right now. So, yeah, I think if the Fed, the Fed wants to do this, they feel like they have to do it. Um, they don't want to cause pain just for the sake of pain, but the, the rhetoric is clear, and I agree with them on this, that if you let inflation, inflation is like a fire. If you get a little fire in your kitchen, hopefully you've got a fire extinguisher there, and you might save the house. But if, if it gets much bigger than the kitchen, there's, there's no stopping it. And that's what inflation is like. So they've, they've got the fire extinguisher out, and they're they're gonna they're like ruin ruin the uh, ruin the wood floor with their with their fire extinguisher. That was a clever analogy a few moments ago, Jeffrey. So thank you for sharing. I, I did mention at the top we're, we're speaking on Thursday, September 29th. How markets closed in the red. We have been seeing a lot of volatility within equity markets as a result of the Fed's monetary policy course this year. In terms of investment opportunity from this volatility during these times, it might be easy for one to stay on the sidelines. What kind of opportunity, in your view, does volatility create from an asset allocation? perspective, and why is portfolio diversification so important from your vantage point? Well, we're in a market where everything's been going down together, and it's very highly correlated, so it's kind of all one market. But at this point, because of the valuations, it's, it's not... I don't think it's it's a good idea to just be in cash. I, I think, by, depending upon risk profile, I think you start with these credit opportunities and bonds. And I would actually have probably 35% of my assets in the, this type of credit portfolio. You can start with the lowest risk, what I think is the, the, the most likely to have a decent outcome with not a lot of uh, risk along the way, and that is the higher tier of bank loans, which float. So they float with SOFR. And so when the Fed tightens, your coupon goes up. And based upon the forward rate of SOFR, you're probably looking at about an 8% type of earning from these bank loans. The default rate in the bank loan market is less than 1% over the last 12 months. And it's very unlikely that you're going to have significant defaults in the upper tiers, the double Bs, say, of bank loans. And the prices are around 95 And there's one thing about bank loans they have a strong tendency to make their way to par. Uh, you don't have to wait years for it to happen. So if you can earn 8% and get like five points of gain over, say, a two-year period, you're looking at a 10% rate of return with very little risk. I would have that be a significant part of that credit portfolio for a low-risk investor. For a higher-risk investor, well, here comes the tax loss selling in the closed-end fund universe. It always comes like clockwork around November, and these funds are down massively because of credit risk and because they're leveraged, and uh, they're trading at discounts in many cases their net asset value, which are likely to widen. So now you're talking about things that can have returns of perhaps 20% for two years. Uh, even on, on an after-default basis, if you get the prices to recover over, say, that two-year period by, I don't know, uh, 15%, which they're, they're down by 30. So going back up by 15 isn't exactly heroic. 
So I like that. I, I think stocks should be low. I think stocks should be typically I would say around 15 to 30 percent, uh, 25 to 30 percent. I think it's about 15 percent now because the because the, the, the bond opportunity is stronger. I still think uh, I still think uh, something like 25 percent in long-term treasuries, which I've been advocating for quite some time. They obviously haven't worked this year, but uh, the, the, because they haven't worked this year, they can hedge against your stocks and against your credit portfolio. So I have about 25 percent in that, and I think you're supposed to hold cash. Um, I, I don't know, whatever the balance is here, about 25% cash, because risk assets are going to get cheaper, and you know you, you want to be in a position to buy. What about the role of commodities, Jeffrey, given this high inflationary environment? What role might commodities play in a portfolio today? Yeah, I, I advocated about 25% commodities, non-gold, but, but commodities broadly, back in January in the Just Markets call, and it worked really well in the first half. Uh, that, was, that was the one thing that sort of saved you. But thanks to the strong dollar, which has gotten super strong, commodities have been uh, lackluster at best. I mean, the, the, there's certain commodity indices are now down uh, year to date. Not down like stocks or the long treasuries or anything like that, but they're down. I would, I would, be, uh, I would wait to buy commodities. I, I think with the economy weakening, uh, I, I just don't think you're in uh, the right spot for commodities, so I would I would hold off. I, I actually would have would, the perfect thing to, to to do would be to sell commodities and buy this credit portfolio, because I think it's uh, it's just a better, just a higher probability and better risk reward opportunity. So commodities for me are I'm I'm not really positive or negative on commodities at the margin. I think I'm uh, the economic cycle uh, doesn't favor them, so I, I think commodities are kind of uh, going nowhere. Jeffrey, 30 minutes goes very quick. I mentioned at the top, perhaps we can end our conversation on a lighter note. The NFL season just kicked off. I know your bills at the moment are 2-1 and one on the season, coming off of a tough loss last week, though here we are early on. Yeah. How are the bills looking, and how might the season play out from here? Well, the bills have the, if, if there were no injuries, which of course is completely absurd in the NFL, the bills would almost certainly win the Super Bowl. Unfortunately, they're very injured. Um, I think a lot of teams have a lot of injuries. I, I think one of the mistakes that the NFL has done, and I think a lot of coaches have pushed even farther, is they don't really play a preseason anymore. I mean, for example, the Los Angeles Rams didn't have a single starter take a single snap in the preseason. So these players go from off season to the full violence of the of the NFL, and they do it without, uh, you know, getting getting prepped to the extent in, in live action. So we see all these injuries. So, like, for example, in the Miami game that you referenced, the, the, the Bills had zero starters in, in, in the secondary. None. I mean, so it's shocking that they kept the, the uh, Dolphins to 21 points because, because they, uh, you would have thought they would have had a much stronger passing game. But the Bills are injured, uh, but they still, you know, if they get healthy, I think the Bills have a very good chance, and obviously I'm not alone in this. They're still the odds-on favorite to win. But, uh, you know, the NFL is, is so hard. The, the difference between the best team and the worst team is not, is not that big. And so you never know what's going to happen. That's going to depend on injuries. But certainly it's been a long time for Bills fans. I mean, we went 17 years without a playoff. And, you know, we've, we've lived with wide right. We've lived with the, the forward lateral. We've lived with the 13 seconds meltdown against uh, – Kansas City, and I'm, you might add to it that Miami game, the way they managed to not even, not even uh, 
time managed, couldn't even get the final playoff to try to, to try to win the game. It's frustrating. The Bills, I'll give you a statistic that's really fascinating. Over the past uh, I don't, a couple of seasons, I think it is, when they win, they've won every game by over 10 points. And whenever the game is tight, they've lost. So it's weird. It's sort of like they, they get, they get uh, tense or the coach has a brain freeze, which we've seen many of times in the Super Bowl. Remember Pete Carroll not running it on second and a goal from the half-yard line with Marshawn Lynch and threw an interception? Remember the, remember the Atlanta game where they were ahead, by, I don't know, like three touchdowns <laughs> plus? All they had to do was kick a field goal, and they, 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 went, they went to throw the ball and ended up out of field goal range. I mean, it kind of feels uh, – my fear is that Sean McDermott, who's a – Pretty disciplined guy, but when it gets when the, when the going gets really critical, he seems to sort of choke. I, I hope I hope he loses that tendency because it's it's brutal on the fan base. Well, the good news is we have a lot of football ahead of us. Uh, though Jeffrey, do want to thank you very much for your time today. As always, very generous with your time, your guidance. It's always a pleasure having you here with us on UBS on air. Looking forward to having you back again with us. That sounds great, Dan. Thanks very much, and good luck, everybody out there. I, I know it's I know it's a tough year, but stay stay positive. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.